O man, can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world, to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. How many of us have a dog? Anybody have a raise your hand if you have a dog? All right. How many of you, your dog primarily is inside? Raise your hand. All right. How many of you, your dog is right there when you're ready to open the door? Uh, just about everybody. Yeah, he's ready. He's looking for the open door. You can open the door. You can open the door. And he busts out of there, right? At least the dogs that I've had, you know. I've had it. I remember this. I don't remember. He was so angry to get out that when they went to, I think it was a brother, when he went to open the door like this, he came and swooped up under him like this. The dog says, open the door. You know, the dog comes running, and my brother was like, and he swooped up under it, and my brother was riding on his back like just for a few moments, and the dog just trotted out there. Thank you. Got to go to the bathroom. Got to smell stuff that is gross and everything else, you know. But uh, the dogs are looking for open doors, right? I got to get outside. You know, I want to find stuff and smell stuff and do other stuff. But um, dogs are looking for them. People that are Black Friday shoppers, I don't know how that's going to be this year. They're standing there early in the morning, long lines to buy some ridiculous thing that's going to break by January. And uh, they're looking for the open door of the Best Buy or whatever else thing there is, a Walmart. People are looking for open doors. I remember, I've told you this before, but when I was uh, young, about 6th, 7th grade, we, the old Hohokam Stadium in, in Mesa, um, it, uh, the current one they have there off Center Street, I think the Oakland A's use it, but that was, it was not that. It was another one. Um, it was an old one, probably built in the 40s or 50s. But we went there to watch the Cubs play spring training baseball. It was so fun. It was a good memory. I went with one of my friends, and we would get there early. In the morning, there'd be a game maybe that started at 11 o'clock or maybe even after afternoon. And uh, this is like in 1986, 87. Um, and we would get there, and we his parents would just drop us off, and we we'd have our you know we'd have our pullover sweaters and something that we ate, and we'd have our baseball cards and a, a sharpie, and we were looking for the players as they're coming in. They would they would park in the same parking lot as everybody back then. They'd park in the same parking lot. They'd get out. We'd watch them. You know, we get there early because we want to meet them. They get out of their car and they walk. We would give them a little bit, of, little bit of chance to think before they got to us, and then we'd come up to them. Hey, Mr. Sandberg, can I have your autograph? You know, as they're walking in, Mr. Dawson or whatever. Some of the Cubs players, and we'd follow them. They would have the gate stadium. This is this is like, it was just like chain link fence gate. You know, they would have the gate open a little bit, just enough for a person to walk through, and we'd follow them right up to that open gate and get their autograph and. 
And then we'd wait for another guy to come in. He'd pull in the parking lot. And, um, Sean Dunstan or something, you know. He'd come, hey, Mr. Dunstan, can we follow him on a ball or have a, can, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he'd sign it and then go through the gate. And then after a while, we're like, hey, the gate's open. You know, he'd walk right in. Let's just meet him right here. So some of them would come in through the gate and we're, we're getting uh, autographs and, and uh, as they're going in, then later on, they'd, they'd do their practice and, and they'd, do, um, they'd be out on the field. Then there was a batting cage. It was amazing. They had a batting cage. You can go right up to the cage. There was, I mean, there all the, was the, the chain link fence and then they're inside there. So it'd be like Raphael Palmero was right, right there, batting right there next to me and this guy. And I'd be right there. And I remember one time he was batting and batting. He cracked his bat and he reached over the fence and handed it to my friend. I think my friend said, Mr. Palmero, can I have your bat? He reached over the fence and handed, uh, Rafael Palmero handed my friend Joe Cortez his, his cracked bat. It didn't even look like, it doesn't look good to me, but apparently there's some kind of fracture and he can detect when there's a, you know, a little crack in it. And he was all excited about that. But <clears throat> we, were, we were happy to have that open door. Um, we didn't really pay to get in. Actually, we didn't go into the stadium. We stayed outside the stadium the whole time, really, right in kind of between. There's a parking lot, a chain link fence. There's this area of commerce and walking about and buying the vendors. Then there's a stadium, and you go in. We didn't even go in. We just hung out looking for foul balls, going by the batting cages. And uh, it was nice having a little open door to be have access to the players in that sense. Tonight, this is about a church that was... Now, here's the kind of the, the idea here. This church, we're going to see, was, it was not big and impressive. It wasn't even strong and apparently influential. It had a little strength, but it was faithful. It did, they did not deny the Lord's name. And they were true to Him. And God says, I'm going to make an, I'm going to give you an open door, a great opportunity. The Lord was going to open a special door of opportunity for them. And we're going to look at what that's about. Here we go. Let's look at this. The address. We're going to follow an outline. The address of the church, the attributes, the uh, assessment, the assignment, and the announcement. Those are our five main points as we walk through the text. The address of the church. Notice what it says, verse 7, and to the church, to the church of the angel in Philadelphia right. Where is Philadelphia? Where is its address? Again, not in Pennsylvania, in Asia Minor. And this is uh, kind of in that region of those other six churches. And this city was named Philadelphia because apparently its founder, it was named after its founder, Adelus Philadelphus, king of Pergamus, and from B.C. 159 to, um, or pardon me, 159 B.C. to 138 B.C. He was king of that area, and he was the founder of this particular city. The reason they nick, there's some kind of nickname to him, Philadelphus, brotherly love, be, the reason is, is because he was loyal to his brother. I don't know how to say his name, but it ends in an E-S. Uh, he was loyal to his brother, so they named the city after him, Philadelphia, the city of this king, remembering this king who showed brotherly love. By the way, boys, show some brotherly love to your brothers. It's not fair if you're nice to your friend, if you're more nice to your friend than you are to your brother. Show brotherly love. To your brother, show love to your brother. Uh, learning, how, learning how to love starts at home. Okay, 
And so our home should be a, a type of Philadelphia, a place of brotherly love. But here's the address for this church. It's there at that middle, that Asia Minor area. It was named after this king. Apparently, this place was like a launching pad for the influence and the, uh, of the Greek culture. They, the Greek language was spread um, to the rest of the world. And somehow, in some way, they say that the Greek culture and customs was, was uh, um, kind of spread from this city. Number two, the, at, the attributes of Jesus. The attributes. We looked at the address of the church. Notice the attributes of Jesus. He tells who's, he describes who's the one that's writing to them. He describes himself. He says, these things saith he. What's Jesus like? Look what it says. These things saith he that is holy. Jesus is holy. Jesus is true. These things saith he that is true and he that hath the key of David. Let's consider those three things. What is Jesus like? We see his we see purity, verity, and sovereignty in those descriptions. His purity. He is holy. Jesus is holy. You know what holy means? It's unlike the whole world. That's what holy is. He's unlike every, everything else in the world. Um, he is without sin, separate from sinners, and uh, pure, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And that's why, by the way, we should try to be holy in our Christian life. We should try to live a sanctified Christian life and not be delving into the filth of the world. We want to be engaged with people of the world, but not delved into the filth and sin of the world. Why do we not be like that? Not because we want to be polished and, and say, get attention as super Christians, but because that's how what our God is like. And we want to be reflections of our holy God. Because He is holy, I therefore want to be holy, because the ultimate objection is to reflect Him, not to reflect me or my style of Christianity. I want to reflect Him. He says in 1 Peter 1, Be ye holy, for I am holy. He didn't say be ye holy because Baptists are holy, because your favorite kind of Christian is holy. Be holy because that's me, and people need to see me. Jesus says, These things saith He that is holy. That's His purity. Notice His verity. He says, These things saith He that is true. Jesus is true. We're not always true. We need to be true. We're not always dependable. We're not always honest. We need to be those things. But Jesus is always true. He's called the faithful and true witness. Jesus is true. Religion will fail you. Some churches will fail. But Jesus won't fail you. He's true. He's not fake. He's not a hypocrite. He's, there in Him is no faint. He's not feigned. These things saith He that is true. That means genuine, authentic, versus being fake. Somebody talked to me recently and says, I'm just tired of some Christians because it just seems like some of them are fake. And I know that happens sometimes. I'm glad that as you put your heart and mind into God's Word, you're going to read about a Savior who's real, who's portrayed in a, such an authentic way, especially in the Gospels. And when you trust Him and you follow Him, you'll find out He's true. He's always been true to me. And I'm sure for those of you that have trusted Him and walked with Him, you'll find out He is and will continue to be true to you. He says, These things saith He that is holy, He that is true. And the next characteristic is sovereignty. His purity, His verity, and His sovereignty. Notice how it's described. He says, These things saith He that hath the key of David. He that opens, and no man shuts, and shuts, and no man opens. Well, wait a minute. It's saying Jesus has a key. He has the key of David. Now, in order for us to understand this, we're going to have to, we're going to have to, I won't take you to the scripture, but there's a passage in Isaiah and in 2 Kings describing a man named Eliakim. This phrase is, is, is relating Jesus, it's, um, it's relating an Old Testament, something that happened to an, with an Old Testament character and saying that's what Jesus is like. There's a man named Eliakim and he served under King Hezekiah. 
King Hezekiah was of the house of David in Judah. He's the house of David. He was a good king, Hezekiah was. And Hezekiah, the keeper of his household, the one who managed the household and probably most likely the treasury, his name was Eliakim. And God says, and there's a passage in Isaiah, I think it was Isaiah 22, where God says, I'm giving the keys uh, to the house of David, referring to his current king at the time, Hezekiah, who's of the house of David. I'm, the key, I'm putting the key to the house of David on Eliakim. It meant there was this man in the Old Testament who served, who served next, who was in the administration of Hezekiah. His name was Eliakim, and he, had, he was an extension of that king. He could, when, there, when there was people outside the city, the king didn't have to go out there and say, who's outside the city? Who's trying to get in here? Who's the emissaries coming from another country? Who's the enemies that are trying to talk with us? The king, Hezekiah didn't, Eliakim did. Who is this? He had, the, he had uh, some authority and sovereignty who can come in and go out. He had like, a, it was like having a key. Eliakim was that. In fact, Eliakim had to speak with, uh, I think it was one of the kings of Assyria who was trying to come and attack Hezekiah. Eliakim and a few other guys were, were talking with him and they were, they were greatly concerned because of some things that this intimidating king of Assyria was saying to his nation, to the nation of Israel in, in Jerusalem, uh, those that were in Jerusalem. And so Eliakim had access. He was, he was like, it's almost like there's some people that work for kings, that that guy that's working for this king, you might as well be talking to the king himself. That's how Eliakim was. If somebody needed some money, money, if there was some spending that took place, Eliakim had, he, he was like the one that um, uh, had the key to the treasury. As far as accessing the king's wealth, that's Eliakim. Um, you know, some of you have, maybe you have a, a safe in a bank or something. You know, you have, a, in a sense, a key or you have a combination um, maybe you actually literally have a safe at home and there's a key for it. You have access to something. You can open it. And if you have the key, you can make it where nobody can really close it, right? You turn it a certain way. Um, and you can close it and where nobody else can open it back up. You have access. You have some power there. That's The Lord says this. This is how he describes himself. Philadelphia, I'm the one who's holy and true, and I'm the one who has the key of David. I have the power, I have the sovereignty to open doors so something can happen, something can go in and out, and close doors where nothing can happen. I have that power. You know, the Bible says our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. If he wants to open a door, he can do it. If he wants to close the door, he can do it. And when he closes it, you're not opening it. And when he opens it, you're not going to be able to uh, uh, close it back. He has sovereignty. He has all powers given to him. So that's how the Lord describes himself, his attributes. Now notice now the, the assessment of the church. In verses 8, 9, and 10, we get an assessment of what this church is like. So we see kind of where the church is. We see what Jesus is like. Now what's this church like? And I want you to see something that's kind of revolved around them being blessed. First of all, we see that they're blessed with an open door. Notice this. The Philadelphian church is blessed with an open door. Look what the Lord says to them in verse 8. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. First of all, we see they're 
the assessment of this church that they are blessed with an open door. Look what he says, verse 8. I know that works. Look, behold, check this out, church. I have set before thee an open door. What in the world was this open door? Can you imagine that? Again, the Lord's writing to this church. Hey, I know what you've been doing. Look at this. I've opened a door for you. Now, just reading that, we're like, uh, is it, was their doors not working in their church or something? What is this? You know, Really what this is, if we were to look at other scriptures, the best way to interpret this open door is this. It was a gospel opportunity. Now, let me support that statement. by there's, I'll just throw it out at you. The times that the phrase open door or door of utterance is used in the New Testament, it's used in Acts 14, 27, 1 Corinthians 16, 9, 2 Corinthians 2, 12 to 13, and Colossians 4, 4, 3, those four passages, and all four times that this phrase of a door, an open door is used, all four times it's speaking about an opportunity to share the gospel, an opportunity to witness, whereas it was closed before. Now here's the opportunity. Paul talked about it when he came back from his first missionary journey in Acts 14, 27. They came back to their home church in Antioch, he and Barnabas, and they said, we want to tell you how God opened the door to the Gentiles, opened the door of the gospel to the Gentiles. There was a great opportunity for us Jews to connect with these Gentiles and give them the gospel. They were open to it. And then there's a passage in 1 Corinthians 16, 9. Paul referred to this. We preached some months back how Paul says, uh, there's a great door open to me. I have this great opportunity. Most likely it was some kind of a venue that he could preach at where a lot of people would be there. And he says, I have this opportunity, but I'm telling you, there's so many adversaries, people fighting against me on this. But I have the opportunity. And then he says <clears throat> something similar in 2 Corinthians 2. And then in Colossians 4, 3, he tells the Colossians, he says, all right, Colossians, pray for me. Pray for me. Um, um, that, and he says, and that God would open a door of utterance for me, that I may make the gospel known. Um, you know, sometimes I have a desire, I want to talk to this person. I want to say the gospel. I want to utter something to them. And, and I feel like it's just, it's stopped. It's closed. Or I start saying something and they have to leave. And, and Paul says, yeah, I, I know how that feels. Pray for me that I have a, that God opens a door of utterance. So back to the, the church of Philadelphia. The Lord's writing them. He's describing who he is. And he says, listen, church, I've opened a door for you. And nobody's going to stop. Nobody's going to close this door and stop this opportunity. I've opened this door and, um, that you can take advantage of. So what is it? Most likely it was some scenario whereby the church of Philadelphia could give the gospel in an unshackled way. Give the gospel to several people. Maybe it would be something like if they had radio back then, it was like they had a great opportunity to get the gospel over the radio waves. Or maybe there was some venue where they could, they could really utilize free speech of the gospel out in the open air. Or perhaps maybe it was something like, um, uh, maybe there was a chariot route they could start running, you know, a bus route. Maybe that, something like that. I don't know, but um, maybe there was an ethnic ministry. Maybe there was people from another ethnicity coming in that area, and they had somebody, a couple people in the church that could speak that language and that wanted to give the gospel, and they had all these other people of that same ethnicity that were open to it, and it was, God says, I got this great open door for it. Maybe it was something like that. But there was some open door in that sense. And the Lord says, I've set before you that. Why? Why did God bless them with this open door? And let's follow the logic of the words here. Look what he says, verse 8. I know that works. I know what you've been doing. 
And I have set before you an, open, an opportunity here. No man can shut it. Why, Lord? Verse 8. For thou hast little strength and hast kept my word and hast not denied my name. Did you hear that? The Lord just told us why he opened this door for the, for the, uh, the, the church of Philadelphia. Because he says, that you've been working. You have little strength. You're not that big and influential. You don't have a lot of power and sway. But you have done, in spite of the fact that you're not strong, you have kept my word. You still did what I said to do. And you've not denied my name and said, oh, there's no use. You're just not strong. We just don't have things like the rest of the churches. We don't have a lot of influence. Ugh. No, they didn't give up. They said, we have a little strength, but we're still going to do what Jesus says in the Bible. We're still going to be church. We're going to still try to witness to people. We're still going to try to live for Jesus. We're going to still try to stand for Jesus. We're going to still try to, uh, even though it seems like a drop in the bucket, we're still going to try to influence this filthy, sinful world. And they just kept his word, and they didn't deny his name in the face of being a minority and a massive majority of paganism. They just kept at it, kept at it, kept at it. And the Lord says, I know what you've been doing. I see that, you know what, I'm going to reward you with an open, open a door where you're going to have a great opportunity now to do even more gospel work. That's what I believe the Lord is saying to this church. He blesses them with an open door because they've proved to be trustworthy with the little strength they have. Now, um, let us not, let us be faithful with what little opportunities and little strength that we have as Christians and as a church. I mean, look at us. We're a smaller church. And we shouldn't cease to try to cease to be being church because we're smaller, because we still use a house, you know. We should, it's like, well, this is who we are. We're going to still keep his word the best we can. We're not going to deny his name. We want to still keep going after people, still keep living for Jesus in a, in a way that glorifies him. And if the Lord may be pleased with that and say, Royal View, I know your works because I'm open for you an open door. And maybe, we don't know what that would be. But I, I, when I was studying this text, I'm like, I don't know what church we are in the book of Revelation yet, but we could be this church. We could be this church. If we, though we're little and have to some little strength, if we just keep his word and not deny his name, the Lord may be, Please to open some kind of door for us for, I don't know, property, land, maybe a, another a way to reach more people. Maybe the post office will decide to just give us their property. You know? How about we buy, how about you guys just buy it for a dollar? Okay. Everybody vote on that? Yes, amen. Okay. No, I'm just, I'm just throwing things out there. You don't know. But all I know is we're responsible to, to keep his word, not deny his name, and we could be a Philadelphia church. See, there's a there's kind of a mentality that all the churches nowadays are just Laodicean churches, lukewarm, and that doesn't necessarily have to be true. We can be a, a Philadelphian church. So the, God assesses them, by the Lord assesses them by saying, I blessed you with an open door. Here's another aspect. I blessed you with influence. Now, this is interesting. I, I can't quite discern everything about it, but I'll give you my, my take on it in verse um, 9. He, here's a part of his, the other part of his assessment. He describes how that he's going to bless them with influence over their adversaries in verse 9. He's going to bless them. He says, Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. So I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. Now this is synagogue of Satan. Man, you, you read commentaries and preachers of even of kind of our, our mind and our uh, 
theology, and everybody kind of has a little bit of a different take on it. Oh, no, it means the cults, and no, it means all Jews. No, it means, and it's like it's hard to figure out who the synagogue of Satan is. It appears that it's some kind of, it appears that it's the, from what I can tell, antagonistic Jews in their area that were very antagonistic to the gospel. And, I mean, you see that in the book of Acts. When Paul went about preaching, there was a Jews, few Jews here and there that would get saved. But most often, the Jews got so mad, they're like, we're going to kill you, Paul. And it was like, man, this is the synagogue of Satan. So it was probably antagonistic, highly antagonistic Jews in their area. And the Lord says to the church of Philadelphia, I'm going to turn the tables. And it, 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 it probably means that somehow many of them are going to get converted and say, you know what, you all are right, you were right. He says, I will make them which are the synagogue of Satan, which are say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I'll make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. There's some th- it's uh, at best a conversion of former enemies, at least a concession by them. I'm going to make them say, yes, you people are right, you know. The Lord is going to bless them with influence over their adversaries and impact. Notice another part of his assessment. He assessed by showing the, their assessment shows the blessing of the open door, a blessing of influence, and then the blessing of, a, of future deliverance. This is interesting. Look at this verse, verse 10. <clears throat> Think about these words here. As thou hast kept the word of my patience... I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them dwell upon the earth. Now I'm going to do a little aside here. It's interesting how sometimes prophecy comes out in the Bible. If you read like have you ever read the passage about Satan being Lucifer and the 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 um, um, you know the anointed cherub and some of there's like Ezekiel and Isaiah passage. I think it was in the uh, I don't remember if it was one of those passages, the Lord is talking to a king, Tyrus. And all of a sudden, you're like, wait a minute, I don't think he's talking about Tyrus anymore. And it starts describing Satan. And to where it almost goes from, I'm talking to this person, now I'm talking about something beyond this person. Um, Sometimes these prophecies that come out in the Old Testament, it's like the Lord is talking about a current event, and then all of a sudden he's talking about something that's projected way out in the future. When he talked about the virgin birth of Jesus, I think it was in Isaiah. He was talking about some current event, and all of a sudden he talks about, Behold, I will give you a sign, and a virgin shall conceive and shall bear a son. It's like in these prophets, they're addressing their current day, the current activities, and then all of a sudden he's talking about something future. I think that's something that's happened here. The Lord says, Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Now, wait a minute. That sounds like some way future thing. Is that church still going to be there for that? I don't think that church is there anymore. It looks like this is projecting something way in the future. What is the hour of temptation, hour of trial, Hour of testing. What's it going to involve? What's it going to come upon? The whole world. So he's talking to this church and he's addressing these believers. He says, I'm going to keep you from. What's the language there? 
I will keep thee from this testing that's going to come upon the whole world. I don't know of any testings that have thoroughly come upon the whole world, which shall try them. Who's it going to involve? Them that dwell upon the earth. Them that dwell upon the earth. Did you know that phrase, them that dwell upon the earth, is about, I don't know, six, seven, eight times that phrase is used in the rest of the book. Dwell upon the earth. And it's describing the people living on the earth during the tribulation time. So what is this saying? This, I believe, is a reference to the fact that there is a pre-trib rapture of the church. Kind of in a unique way it's stated. But this is us. We're, we're His people. We're His bride. And He's not going to keep us through the tribulation time. By the way, let me just pause a second. In the world, we will have tribulation, Jesus says. Become the world. All that live in Christ Jesus shall, persecute, shall suffer persecution. Um, if they've persecuted Him, He says, they're going to persecute you. You're going to have... Um, uh, 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 you're going to have to endure persecution. But there's this, there's this universal, global one, global uh, tribulation that's going to happen. The Lord says, oh, that one, I'm going to take you out of it. I'm going to keep you from it. He didn't say, I'm going to keep you through the tribulation, church. I'm not going to keep you through part way and take you out halfway or three quarters of the way. I'm going to keep you from the hour of temptation which shall come upon the whole world. In the Bible, um, Jesus mentioned it in one of the Gospels, and then we see it in Revelation. Daniel mentioned it, the time of Jacob's trouble. There's a seven-year future tribulation time, and the church in a, is going to be raptured and per, uh, exempt from that particular thing. Not exempt from problems, not exempt from local persecution, but that global one, he's going to pull us out. They were blessed with future deliverance, and we're in on that blessing. So that was the assessment. Two more points, the assignment to this church. Notice what he says, pretty simple assignment. He basically says, eh, just keep doing what you're doing. Revelation 3.11, here's the assignment the Lord gives to the church of Philadelphia. Behold, look, I come quickly. That means abruptly. Hold fast that which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. I believe that Jesus could come back at any time, abruptly, quickly. And the Lord says to this church, here's your assignment. I'm going to come. I'm going to come. I could come at any moment. And whatever you're doing, what you're doing now, just hang on to it. Hold fast. Stay at what you're doing right now. Now, if, we, if you see yourself in this passage of not denying his name, keeping his word, even though you have little strength, you know what the Lord says to you? Just keep doing what you're doing. Keep trying to live for the Lord as a mom, as a dad, as a, as a Christian uh, businessman. Hold fast what you're doing. Hold fast with you because I'm going to come quickly and then we're going to have a, we're going to, you're going to have a, 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 you know, we'll have a, a time up in heaven with him, the, the marriage supper of the Lamb. He says, hold fast. That's his assignment to them. And then his announcement. Notice this, the fifth point. His announcement we see in verse 12 and 13. The announcement to the church is this. He that overcometh. Again, that is a reference to those who are Christians. If you've accepted Jesus as your Savior, you're an overcomer by virtue of the salvation He gives you. He that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. 
and I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. We'll stop right there. Notice a, a few things here. Are we, if you're saved today, remember this, we've been saying this, you're an overcomer. Yes, I'm an overcomer. It's kind of like this. People, when the Titanic went down, <clears throat> people got on lifeboats. There's like, I'm just getting in a lifeboat. And they're in it. Guess what they were? An overcomer. By virtue of this wonderful lifeboat that was made for them, even though it's probably packed and it's freezing cold, they were overcomers by being in the lifeboat. I'll overcome that disaster. Listen, if you just put your faith in the lifeboat of Jesus Christ, that's it. Just rest in Him. You've overcome a huge disaster, eternal disaster of hell and the wrath of God. So if you've trusted Jesus, you're an overcomer. You're in on this. And what does He say? I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Now, I, I, I can't elaborate much on that. But it sounds really cool, right? Kind of like the manna thing. Um, they say that in the day, in this day, they would, some important person of a city, when they died, they would carve his name on a pillar of one of the pagan temples. Well, the Lord is saying, you know, in heaven, in my city, by the way, heaven's going to come down and over the earth as well. He says, I'm going to put your name there. And that shows identity and permanence for us. Isn't that neat? He's saying, you're going to have a permanent citizenship with me uh, at my temple. And he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him. Oh, now we got some writing here. Look at verse 12. I will write upon him the name of my God. I, I, again, I don't know how this is going to work. If there's any justification for tattoos ever in the Bible, it's this. God gets to write them on you. This weird scumbag down here in downtown Gilbert that's got this, you know, thing. Yeah, you want a tattoo? Okay, come here. You know, that's not justifying tattoos, okay? But if there's a tattoo, let's let Jesus put them on us, okay? All right, and it, 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 that's even a cheesy way of saying it. But he says, look, I will write upon him in the name of my God. I don't know what that means as far as what it's going to look like. We're going to have God's name on us, Jehovah, and the name of the city of my God. Well, well there, identify us with his city which is New Jerusalem, but he's not, done, he's not done talking. He says, New Jerusalem comes down out of heaven from my God. And Jesus says, well, look at the last phrase in verse 12, I will write upon him my new name. Wow, well, we know Jesus' name. He's got several names. His personal human name was Jesus, which means Savior. It's like Old Testament Joshua. But there's a new name Jesus is going to have? Hmm. He's going to write that on us. We get all this identification with the Lord. Wow. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. The essential thing that the Spirit is saying to this church, verse 13, is you've been faithful. Here's an open door for you and of, of gospel opportunity in some sense. You know, I think sometimes God gives us open doors. I know some of us were looking for an open door to get a job to move into a different house, to sell the house we have, and, you know, for, well, the market's high, and then get another one at a decent price. We're, we're looking for those type of financial open doors, maybe in investments. But we should be looking for gospel open doors. You know, some of you, this is a little bit of a, um, maybe a cheesy example, but some of you got, uh, Anybody get one of the, remember when we, brother, I was in Tennessee at the time, we had a whole bunch of, somebody donated a whole bunch of chickens, not live chickens, not live chickens, brother Derek, remember, uh, but some chickens, some chickens to the church, and um, there might even still be a few in the freezer, by the way, they're good, we ate them, put them in some enchiladas and stuff, but 
Um, we ate some that we took. But there was a Christian that donated, not in this church, some chickens. She had like, she called me up. This is, it's, it's Miss Joe. She lives across the street. She goes to another Christian church. Her, her mother, Miss D, used to attend here. Um, and so she, Joe calls me like on, uh, it was like on a Friday night at 6 or 7 o'clock. Pastor Henry, I got 35 chickens here. Do you want them? And I'm serious. I'd say, ah, uh, uh, what, that, what? You know, I was like, what are you talking about? And then she described how she had some of these frozen chickens. She got them from some other place, and there were some apples and some other things she had. And, and she said, I got to get them delivered. And well, by the time I was able to get here, she got rid of several of them, and there was like 15 left. And then that's when we started getting them out to church and, and some people. And, um, and so, you know, we took a few, and it's nice, and we still have one in the freezer um, uh, at our house. But, but, I, but uh, 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 Grant and I, where is Grant? Oh, he's sleeping. Oh, see, that's all he needs to sleep. Just listen to Dad preach. Um, anyways, Grant and I went door knocking right over here, not on the frontage road, but behind it yesterday, not door knocking. We were actually just canvassing, waiting to talk to people outside. Some people came to the door, and we talked to them. Uh, with a mask, we had a mask on, but um, we went through this one neighborhood just off of Gilbert Road here, and um, as I'm going through it, uh, this is, I was at the end of this one street, and everybody has chain link fences, so in between two houses, I see the chain link fence, so I can see the backyard of the next person on the other street, which is these frontage road houses, which Miss Joe lives there, and um, and uh, as I'm going at the end of the school, I said, oh, I can see Miss Jill in her backyard. She kind of has an outside um, um, washer and dryer she does. And I said, hey, Joe. She goes, oh, hey, Pastor Henry. And then I kept walking. She goes, hey, by the way, those people, as I'm going to this one, they're Mormon. And she named the name of this one family. And, oh, and they're Mormon. And, and then she pointed out this other house. And by the way, that family, they're also Mormon. Started telling me a little bit about them, something about them. And then I said, oh, okay. And then she started talking some more. I couldn't hear, so I started walking. I actually walked down the side of between the two houses over the chain link fence right by the mini little um, irrigation canal. And we talked through the chain link fence, and she was, and she was just telling me about the neighbors. And um, she said she got to know this one neighbor. She's recently a widow and something about this other one. And she got to talk to one of them about the Lord and because uh, Joe was a Mormon herself the first 13 years of her life and went to the Mormon church, doesn't remember a lot about it, but she was just telling me how she was witnessing to them, and she said, um, yeah, and I said something about chicken, you know, we've been eating chicken lately, and she goes, oh yeah, she goes, I gave them to these families too, right here, the, the houses, a handful of the houses that I went by that are behind her, she goes, yeah, I gave it to that one lady and this one Mormon lady over here, and I gave them some chickens too. And I think that gave her a door of utterance with them, to talk to them. And I thought, a frozen chicken's an open door, you know? You know, a, a plate of cookies. I remember a couple years ago, Johanna, my daughter, wanted to give, make cookies for all of our neighbors around us around Christmas time. And it gave me a chance to, she made them and we both went over there and delivered and it gave me a chance to kind of break the ice with a few neighbors that don't get a... It's hard to connect with. And that was nice. And you see, sometimes the open door is already right there, you know. Go grab a frozen chicken or something, you know. 
I mean, what I'm saying is there's other types of open doors that we can just start walking through, you know. You spend a little more time on a Saturday and talk to the neighbor a little bit. Um, But I'm glad Miss Jo took her opportunity, and so we should as well. You know, um, we can be like, I I was thinking of um, this church, Shubal Stearns was a Baptist pastor, I think it was 1700s. And he started Sandy Creek Church in the south, just with 16 members. It grew to 600 members. It still exists today. I don't think it's that big. But I read about this church. It was just a little church. They just preached the gospel. They were just faithful. They did what they're supposed to do. And that church, in 17 years, planted 42 churches. Now, that would be daughter churches and granddaughter churches. In other words, the first churches that they started also started. In 17 years, 42 churches were started from Sandy Creek Baptist Church. And by the way, a lot of the uh, Southern Baptists and Independent Baptists today, if they start doing, not that we're supposed to, not that you should be doing a genealogy of your church, but if you would, a lot of us go back to that church, that a pastor from a pastor from a pastor from a pastor started this and who led this guy to the Lord who started in this church. Some of us go back to the, by way of a ministry connection, go back to that church or the church in Rhode Island, um, um, that uh, Roger Williams was. So my point is, I was thinking about this church. I'm like, you know, they just had a little strength. They just had a little strength. They had a little congregation, but they were faithful, and God gave them an open door to do a lot of church planning. And by the way, that was why they think this is the South this is a Bible Belt, because of a lot of Baptists and some Methodists that were very strong there. God blessed them with the open door. God has open doors for us. It might be the fact that somebody stops and listens to you a little longer than you thought the next time you talk to them about something spiritual. We need to take advantage of that. Let's bow our heads and pray. Lord, thank you for your 